You're listening to Founders On Air with Steve Orenstein and Mike Rosenbaum. Today we have Taryn Williams, founder and CEO of The Right Fit and Wink Models. Welcome to the program, Taryn. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us today and congrats on what you're building with The Right Fit. It's a fantastic Aussie success story in the marketplace sector. Oh, thank you so much. You know how hard building marketplace is. I'm <laughs> both intimately aware of that. So uh, <laughs> I really appreciate that. So um, tell us how you got started as an entrepreneur, Taryn. Yeah, I mean, God, my first business is over 12 years old actually now. So back in my day, we didn't have entrepreneurs. You were just like a small business owner, right? Like I think entrepreneurs is like a new hypey thing. So I had worked as a model myself and then I'd worked as a producer in my industry. So I'd worked both client side and talent side and I just sort of could see that there was an opportunity to do things better. There was so many inefficiencies and inequalities in the modeling industry and with the blissful naivety of youth, I mean, I was 21 years old. I thought, you know what, I can do this better. I'm going to start my own agency. I'm going to pay everyone on time. I'm going to treat them well. And I'm going to be a real extension of my client's team instead of this sort of combative other party, which is sort of how the industry operated at the time. So armed with my laptop and probably a Blackberry at the time, I um, started my first business. Amazing. And did you always want to be a business owner, as you called it, or an entrepreneur growing up? What did you think you wanted to do before you started? To be honest, I mean, I studied politics and international relations, but I guess I had a pretty unconventional career path and upbringing. I'd traveled a lot. My parents sort of traveled all over the world and I got to live in some amazing different countries. And I started modeling quite young. So I was sort of 15 when I started modeling and and that exposed me to so many different people and so many amazing creatives. And I got probably opportunities that other people in that sort of 17, 18, 19 year old bracket didn't get. And so I don't think I realized that starting business was something different. I was exposed to a lot of people who were business owners or key decision makers in organizations. So it wasn't really, unlike some people who, you know, had had a very traditional career path and then made the big jump to go out on their own and do their own thing. I don't think I'd really ever had that. So yeah, I don't know anything different. I've never really had a job. So to me, this is just sort of the status quo. So tell us all about The Right Fit for those who haven't come across it so far. So The Right Fit is a two-sided marketplace for creative talent. So we have all different kinds of creative. So things like models and actors, photographers, influencers, celebrities, public speakers, pretty much anything that a brand could need to bring a creative campaign to life. So whatever that looks like, whether it's a piece of online content or a social media campaign or a TV commercial or a print campaign. And so is your target audience, is it small business, is it enterprise, anyone looking to sort of grow? Look, it is a bit of a mix of both. I mean, we have about four and a half thousand clients a platform and they really do range from startups who are creating, you know, their very first homepage images, for example, right through to sort of the top end of town, Qantas and big spending, big blue chip brands and advertising agencies and production companies. So that's the great thing I think about marketplaces is it really democratizes content creation. It allows anyone at any sort of entry point, um, irrespective of your budget or your experience to be able to unlock content and talent. Yeah, absolutely. And what advice would you give to a founder that's considering leveraging influencers to help grow their business? 
Look, I think the most important thing, like any channel of marketing, is to have a plan and have a brief and have a strategy. And you can't go into these things blind. It's like saying you're going to run some Facebook ads or you're going to run some Google ads without knowing what you're doing or having any sort of tracking set up or any of these things, which is unfortunately because this is such a new industry and I think it is still quite mystified for a lot of people. It is unfortunately what we still see a lot of people doing. So I think firstly, get really, really clear about why it is that you want to engage influencers. Influencers are an amazing trusted voice of authority in a particular space. So if you can find someone who really resonates with your target audience that you're trying to speak to, They have spent years building trust. They've built a highly engaged audience that can be in a very, very particular niche. So they're an incredible marketing tool if done well. And so I think then it's about firstly identifying who the right influencer is for your brand. And then it's about working collaboratively with that person to tell a story. So I think the really scary thing for a marketer or a business owner is Influencer marketing involves letting go of some of the control. Social media is not a place for advertising. It's not a place that you can effectively use an influencer to hold a product and say, buy this product. It has to be informative or educational or entertaining. You really need to be adding value for a general consumer to want to stop and engage with your brand. So you really need to let go of a little bit of that control and trust that this influencer knows their audience the best. They've spent all of this time building up that audience, they're going to know how to talk to them and how to craft a a successful campaign. So work collaboratively to find that unique angle and that unique story. And then of course, make sure that you've got tracking set up. So you know, the ROI on the back of the campaign as well. Yeah, makes sense. What are you seeing? Are you seeing smaller startups using influencers a lot more or is it at the larger size, the enterprises? I think the fantastic thing is almost all brands now are engaging with influencers in some capacity. I think Previously, there was maybe a bit of a preconceived idea that they only worked for fashion or beauty brands or brands that were direct consumer, whereas we have a lot of clients in the B2B space and we have a lot of brands who activate only on LinkedIn, for example, they use LinkedIn influencers or they'll only use Facebook to target particular audiences and people who have highly engaged Facebook groups. So I think that the market is starting to mature. I think people recognize the opportunity in working with influencers. So we find that they are now considered earlier in the marketing mix as well, which is fantastic. I think for a while there, it was sort of, you'd get to the end of a campaign and people would go, oh, we've got you know $5,000 left over. Let's get some influencers as well. Whereas now they're much more strategic and they're thinking about the influencer marketing part and they're first crafting their marketing campaigns. Yeah, makes sense. And in the early days of the business, what was that like? And how did you sort of build that sort of marketplace where you're building both sides of the marketplace? Marketplaces are really, really tough, I think, as all marketplaces, the founders know. I guess in some ways I was very lucky in that I had a pretty amazing supply side from my years of being in the industry myself and running Wink Models, my first business, which is a traditional, obviously, offline modeling agency. So I had a really great little black book of contacts of photographers and models and actors and makeup artists, which really helped launch with an initial supply side. We launched with about maybe 500 talent across Australia, which we didn't have to spend any money to acquire. So that really helped build that side. And obviously with the supply side of our marketplace, there was already a level of trust. So there was, we'd been really clear in explaining to them the process of building a marketplace and there wasn't going to be jobs available 
overnight, but they, yeah, they already knew me, they trusted me and that they could see what we were trying to build with the business. And on the demand side, on our client side as well, again, I was fortunate to already have a business that operated in a similar space. And I spent a lot of time before I launched the company going to see a lot of our sort of strategic stakeholders and potential clients of the business to really workshop the idea with them before I decided to sort of build it and launch the MVP just to make sure that I really was actually building a product that they were going to use. But yeah, I mean, it's painful getting that liquidity point right, especially in the early days. I remember lots of phone calls in the background, trying to get the right people to the right locations, the right talent types and things like that. So yeah, certainly do things that don't scale at the start. And Taryn, when did you realise that you had that sort of product market fit or I suppose in your case, liquidity in the marketplace and how long into the business uh, was that looking back? It was definitely longer than I thought. It was probably, I mean, we had really great initial success, which was almost probably a false safety a little bit because we, you know, we were seeing this amazing month on month growth, getting fantastic feedback from clients and talent, you know, fantastic net promoter score, all of these things. So we are like, oh, we've got this thing sorted, you know, problem solved, build it and they will come, which as we all know is not, <laughs> not always exactly how it works. So look, it probably took us about a year to really comfortably feel like, look, this is a good idea and this is going to work. And the product that we've designed is answering our users' needs. And then we replatformed probably about, oh gosh, maybe 18 months, two years after the initial build. And that was a massive, painful exercise in itself, um, going back and, yeah, rebuilding the platform from scratch. And, yeah, it was a very, very steep learning curve during that and something I hope to never, ever have to do again. Yeah, it's <laughs> always fun having to rebuild a platform. Yes. And so, Taryn, the right fit, it's a global business today, right? Yes. So we have talent all over the globe, predominantly Australia and Southeast Asia. We have an office in Singapore as well. So Singapore, Hong Kong, Indonesia, quite big markets for us. And yeah, and sort of looking at where's next, the really fantastic thing for our business is that our clients and talent are almost rarely located in the same location. So we have, you know, Sydney-based clients who are shooting in Indonesia and clients based in Singapore who are shooting in Brisbane. So it really, it does make that finding the the right liquidity point in each market quite challenging, but it's also really exciting for creative talent who can now sort of live and travel the world, picking up jobs wherever they want to be at any one point in time. What's it like and sort of how do you manage dealing with customers all over the world? It's painful. Yeah. <laughs> it's really, it's, it, look, do you speak I lots think, of languages? <laughs> yeah. It's challenging. And also, um, understanding the requirements of different markets. I'm very lucky that the person that runs our Singapore office it had been in the market, whilst she's Australian, had been in the market in Singapore for quite a while. So she really understood the different types of diversity and cultural sensitivities in that market, especially in front of the camera talent, so models and actors. There's a lot of cultural sensitivities there around ethnicities and things like that. So, yeah, there's been a lot of learning lessons along the way, that's for sure. Yeah, awesome. What have been the best sort of customer acquisition channels that you've used? God, it's been like brutal hand-to-hand combat, I say, (laughs) with a lot of them. So we found email worked for us really, really well. That's a channel that we were fortunate to have an incredibly engaged database already. Again, it's something that I was fortunate enough to have from my existing business was, you know, some really great contacts in the industry. And is that for supply or is that for the customer side? 
for the customer side, for our demand side. We the, So for our talent acquisition strategy is just to let them come. We get about 250 applicants a day. So it's actually one of the biggest blockers in our business is trying to work through all of the applicants that we get in a timely fashion Yes, to make sure that we maintain the caliber that we need in our marketplace. So um, we've been very fortunate that from day one, we haven't had an issue with onboarding talent, which is a you know great problem to have. But obviously building the demand side has been much more challenging just in a couple of different ways. I mean, we're asking people to do something completely different, as you would both know in your businesses as well. You're asking someone to perform something that they've always done one particular way in a completely different way. So our clients are used to picking up the phone and calling a producer or calling an agency and asking for what they need, a makeup artist or a model or an influencer. And so we're asking them to completely change that behavior and reassuring them that, you know, we've got great talent online who are all vetted that they can work with directly. And then the other thing is that influencer marketing is so new and a lot of our clients are creating social content, not necessarily just with influencers, but Facebook ads, homepage imagery, EDM content. And that's an industry that's, you know, obviously growing exponentially, but putting a lot of pressure on the people in charge of executing those. So a marketing manager's job has changed phenomenally in the last sort of two years. So it's been, um, it's been an interesting time in the industry a whole. So our role within that, I think, has, has had to sort of adapt and change and been quite, I guess, in flux throughout that period as well. Yeah, absolutely. Like any business, we all go through these scary moments or these difficult times. Can you share with our audience sort of a, a scary moment that you've had as the business has been growing? Oh my God, so many. <laughs> There's, um, I mean, replatforming definitely was the most painful period for us. So we'd built a really, really great platform. Um very much an MVP, get it up there, get it out, get customers using it. And then we wanted to build in a lot more complexity into the business and sort of some of the administrative, how we were managing jobs and being able to create things that we just simply couldn't do in how we'd built the system architecture of the first platform. So um, we'd made a decision to go and re-platform whilst we are in the middle of, a, of raising capital. And um, so that was like having two full-time jobs and it was really, really painful. I mean, there just simply wasn't enough hours in the day. I'd built standalone new products before, but I'd never, ever had to re-platform and deal with things like data mapping. And, you know, there were so many bugs and issues and pain points of things that we just, I mean, I could never have predicted having not been through it before and also not having my head, you know, really in the, um, in the product at the time when I was out raising capital. So it was a really painful, and I just am so thankful. So I just remember I would spend the first two hours and the last two hours of every day doing customer service and just apologizing profusely to all of our users that were having problems. And I'm so grateful that they were so, so amazing and stuck with us through it and helped us resolve bugs and find problems. And yeah, but it was a really awful sort of God, six, eight weeks. And if you had to do it again, what would, how would you do it differently? Oh gosh, there's so many things. I mean, I would love to have, I always say I would love to have obviously a technical co-founder would be amazing because obviously not being a technical founder does definitely come with its challenges. And, but then, you know, I say that to people who have a founder and say, I have a partner 
co-founder and say, gosh, you know, it's actually really challenging. Um, so maybe you're, maybe you're better off not having one. So finding the right talent is so challenging, finding the right team and building out and the people that you need change so quickly. You know, the marketing manager that you need today is not the one that you need in, you know, 12 months time. So there's definitely things that I would do differently now in how I structured the team originally. And I think just some of the decisions that we made in building out a lot of big product features really early and probably instead of saying super, super lean and just focusing on very specific user personas, I would probably do that differently if I had my time again. Let's talk a bit about talent. So what tips do you have for founders about hiring and retaining great talent within their businesses? What's worked really well for us is flexibility. I think allowing people to, we now have people that work from all over the place, you know, some that have got young children, you know, some that one that lives in the Blue Mountains, you know, and for us, that has really sort of transformed the business. I think for a long time, there was this idea that everyone had to come to the office and, you know, a bit of presenteeism, people showing up to show up. And, and I think as soon as we let go of a lot of that and allowed people to work as and when they want at a time that they want, it, it's really just, I think, really transformed the culture of the company, but also how much we're able to get done at any one point in time. A lot of our time, I think, for a while was sucked up in meetings, you know, internal meetings for the sake of meetings. And I think the more people work remotely, the less that happens. I think finding really good people is so, so hard. Um, And I think you have to look in unconventional places. I spent a lot of time sort of going to networking functions and speaking to people and trying to find out of the way, I guess, options of acquiring great people in the organization because obviously recruiters and headhunters are so expensive. We are very, very fortunate, obviously, to be a part of the Airtree portfolio. So we have internal recruitment team there and they've been phenomenal to us as well and really managed to help us get some great people. So we're very lucky in that sense. But then also um, I think accepting that in a startup you wear so many different hats. So sometimes it's less about trying to find the right person for the right role and sometimes it's just about finding the right person and then allowing a role to develop around them. And we've had so many examples in our company where people have started in, you know, social media and ended up being, you know, involved in the product team. Um, so I think allowing that flexibility and finding the right cultural fit is much more important. Some great advice. And so would you say you run a remote team or more of a flexible team? Yeah, definitely a flexible team. And especially because I travel so much as well. And, you know, with people in Singapore and the Philippines, obviously. And so, you know, it's definitely, and staying connected is surprisingly easy. I think there is always that fear, right? When you've got people working in different countries, are they going to feel disconnected? Are they not going to feel part of the team? I was spending a lot of time going back and forth to Melbourne as well to see our team down there because I thought that that was really, really important and I wanted face-to-face time. And then you realise there's so many other nice ways to do that without having to physically be face-to-face. And we have so many phenomenal tools like Zoom and Slack and Google Hangouts and all of the things that we use these days that, you know, I can feel like I'm with my team even if, you know, I haven't seen them for 48 hours or whatever, you know, we're always sort of present. And I think that's really nice. Just answered my next question. (laughs) Brilliant. So some great tools. Um. (laughs) Yeah, there's so many I can't live without. That and like Xero, which I secretly love just reconciling payments in Xero, which is one of my all-time favourite things when it just spins and claps and gives you, you know, yes, you've just reconciled all your payments. Congratulations. So 
there's so many awesome tools that I just can't live without now. And I actually don't know how we did without them previously. So yeah, business was just a lot harder. <laughs> a lot harder, definitely. So looking back, was there something that you've built or that you've done that's become a critical like success factor, I suppose, in your business? I think for us, definitely building community on both sides of our marketplace. We spent a lot of time really talking to customers. And I know that sounds like such a basic thing to say, but we have such an amazing community that have really helped shape and drive our product. They will go out of their way to yeah, give us product ideas or flesh out our roadmap with us, validate new features that we're thinking about building. And I think that comes from really in the early days deciding that we were going to invest in building that community and that we would go and see them and sit down in front of clients and talk to them and not be this sort of nameless, faceless marketplace, I guess, on the internet. So I think that's been something that's really paid dividends for us and building that trust as well, especially when we're asking them to to try something new and do their job in a different way when the outcome is, you know, really critical for them. So that's been a really important thing for us. And then I think just trying to focus on continually developing the product and thinking about pr- trying to see what they could potentially need in future when they don't know that yet. And that's a really hard one, really trying to look to the broader, more sort of macro ecosystem about trends of what's happening, what's the, obviously the product initially came out of this move towards brands needing to create faster pieces of digital content for these always on social channels. So I had seen that in my first business, there was this shift away from big spend TVCs and print campaigns to sort of these online content pieces. And I could see that that would mean long-term, I didn't think that that business model was going to be financially viable, hence the move to a sort of marketplace business. And so I think it's about trying to look at what's going to be next and what a client's going to need next that they don't know that they need yet. What KPIs or, or metrics do you always focus on? What's the North Star for, um, for the right fit? Yeah, there's the, uh, I would say average booking value is really important for us, repeat rates and our conversion rate on jobs posted. So it's a delicate balance. Uh, obviously, you know, new registrations, new clients, jobs posted by clients, jobs posted by repeat clients. There's quite a few, obviously, that really affect. And that's where our marketplace can get quite complicated and convoluted as well because there's sort of so many drivers and we have a contra gifting section, we have a SaaS element to our business, you know, there's sort of a few moving pieces, but definitely average booking value, number of jobs posted, completion rates, anything that we can do to sort of drive those is, is fundamental to the business. And what's the best piece of advice that you've been given? Oh, gosh. I would say, like, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room, which is, you know, really around that trying to surround yourself with really, really good people. I've been so fortunate to have amazing mentors and people that have gone above and beyond to help me on this journey. And I'm so appreciative of that. I've really sort of, I guess, made an effort to reach out to people and say, hey, I've never done this before. And this journey can be incredibly isolating and incredibly lonely and and frustrating, um, I think, for for founders and having the ability to go to someone who's done it before or knows, you know, more about a particular, very specific nuanced thing or niche that, that is willing to give you an hour of their time and help you out is just such a beautiful, beautiful act. So um, I think that for me has been the best thing that I've ever, I guess, been taught by someone else and hope to pay forward in the coming years as well. Yeah, excellent. And to follow on from that, if there was a, someone is in the early days of starting their startup, what advice would you give to someone in their very early days? 
get as much advice as possible. Obviously, you know, with a grain of salt to what you listen to, but I find so many founders will say, I've got this really good idea, but I don't want to tell anyone about it, you know, because they might steal my idea or like no one has time to steal your idea. They're so busy executing their own or, uh, you know, and 90% of the pain is in the execution. So if they steal your idea, then, you know, all the power to them. So go out there and really validate your idea to lots and lots of people. Be really open about it. Be open with, you know, what your concerns, you know, your pricing options what you think that you'll need to make the business work, what sort of metrics you're going to need, number of jobs posted or whatever it might be in your business. Because having that real diverse uh, view of externally of what your business could be before you get started really helped me. It really helped shape my product. And it also, I think people are inherently good. I think they want to help other people. And the number of people I went to see before I, I launched this business and even had anything more to show them than a some rough sketches on paper of where my head was at. The number of those people that went on to become either mentors, investors, early employees, or biggest consumers and customers of our brand has been phenomenal. So I think definitely get out there, share your idea, talk to people and get as much advice as you can. That's great advice, Taryn. So what's next for The Right Fit? What does the future look like five years down the path? Oh gosh, five years. I don't know. Let's talk about 12 months. <laughs> I can God, anything Come on. can happen in five years. Uh, you know, we might be living on Mars in five years. Um, look, I think. With, the, with, with Elon Musk? Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> we've just spent a big chunk of time really focused on products. So we've got, a, you know, some really, really exciting things to come in the product roadmap in the next four months, which. I'm so excited about, I mean, we released a whole bunch this year, including some really exciting detailed analytics for influencers, really like deep diving into their audience insights. So it was really great to get those live. And I'm really excited about sort of the next product iteration and what that looks like. And then looking at, you know, potential synergies of sort of broader marketplaces as well. I think this shift towards the gig economy is going to continue. And I think There's some amazing, amazing marketplaces out there that are really solving great problems in this space. So looking at, yeah, I guess what other synergies out there and what other sectors of our industry we could help unlock that latent supply and demand of talent is definitely on the focus for me. And then I think hopefully coming up for air and and thinking about sort of more broadly what is next for me and um, yeah, my various different projects. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for joining us on Founders on Air, Taryn. It's been uh, great hearing your story and being uh, so open about letting everyone hear about it. It's been excellent. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Taryn. You've been listening to Founders on Air with Steve Orenstein and Mike Rosenbaum, a podcast designed for founders by founders to help you scale your business. For show notes and to ask questions for future episodes, go to foundersonair.com. Thanks for listening and don't forget to subscribe. We'll see you next time.